Welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website and blog. My main goal is to speak about my theater-going experiences in concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. This month, we're going to go and see a show in Denver and Chicago. Another goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to see a play, a musical, or a theater company that you may not have known about before. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater visits, and there were 21 of them in the month of March of 2019. From Broadway, we're going to talk about Kiss Me Kate, The Share Show, and Network, starring Brian Cranston. We'll head downtown off Broadway to the Atlantic Theater Company and The Mother, starring Isabelle Huppert. A new musical from Duncan Sheik, the composer of Spring Awakening, called Alice at Heart. There's quite a few outstanding off-off-Broadway surprises this month as well. The national tour of The Lightning Thief, currently in the middle of a six-month run, had a brief stop in New York City, and I had a chance to catch that one. I am also now a reviewer for Broadway World, so I'm seeing more shows and writing more reviews on more sites and enjoying myself immensely. You know, as always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's get started. We have a lot to cover this month. The first thing we're going to talk about is the Broadway revival of Kiss Me Kate. The first Tony Award for Best Musical in 1949 was awarded to Kiss Me Kate. Cole Porter scored this comedy, his most successful show in a career that included Gay Divorce, Anything Goes, and Red Hot and Blue. The Tony Award-winning book by Sam and Bella Spiewak was reportedly inspired by the backstage bickering between Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine during a 1942 revival of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. Roundabout Theatre Company has mounted a good revival of this classic and beloved show. Played by Will Chase, Fred Graham is the director, producer, and star of an upcoming production of a musicalized Taming of the Shrew. His ex-wife, the film star Lily Vanessi, played by Kelly O'Hara, she's playing Catherine opposite his Petruchio. They seem to be arguing all the time. Are they still so in love? Ms. O'Hara's singing is gorgeous through this musical, and Mr. Chase does a fine job as well. This Kiss Me Kate, however, begins with a lackadaisical Another Open in Another Show. The tone is more somber and reflective than I expected. The boisterous lyrics promise excitement from theater professionals getting ready for opening night. Following this middling start, this revival hums along competently, but doesn't really ignite until the song Tom, Dick, or Harry. This song has three suitors pursuing Bianca in this show within the show. 
exceptional dancing elevates this high-caliber number. Playing Bianca's second suitor, Rick Fonio's performance was top drawer. There is an abundance of extra fine choreography by Warren Kyle throughout. Too Darn Hot and Bianca were dynamic ensemble numbers led by James T. Lane and Corbin Blue. Fine singing, fine dancing, a nice set, and good tunes are usually enough to propel a Broadway musical. I kept wondering why this show seemed flat overall despite so many enjoyable sections. Mr. Chase and Ms. O'Hara have some sparkling chemistry. His egotistical ladies' man and her bad-tempered, aggressively assertive diva leaned a little too close to nice and sweet. He is supposed to be taming a shrew, after all. Edgier characterizations might make these characters seem less vanilla. The story has been updated to resurrect the original's magic while also rising to the responsibility of a 2019 revival. The effect might have been to water down the tension and bawdiness. That void is nicely filled by Miss Stiles and Mr. Blue as lovers with their political incorrectness seemingly intact. As gangsters, John Panko and Lance Cody Williams deliver their dated jokes reasonably well. Their big number, the extremely clever Brush Up Your Shakespeare, did not showcase the witty lyrics well enough and was a big disappointment. Scott Ellis directed this production unevenly. This revival of Kiss Me Kate succeeds musically with some great singing and dancing. Mr. Carlisle's choreography is interesting and varied, giving talented hoofers their spotlight moments, and they all excel. If you love these particular actors in this show, you should expect a reasonably enjoyable evening in the theater. This version might have hit far greater heights if it were sharper and more hilariously Shakespearean in scale like the ones achieved by those bickering actors who were the original inspirations for the spoof. The Lundfontaine Theatre on Broadway still bears their name for a reason. Now, let's go to the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. This year, the Will Farrow movie Holmes and Watson won the 39th Golden Raspberry Award for Best Picture. A tongue-in-cheek roasting of bad cinema, this anti-Oscars event began in 1981. The horrendous flop Xanadu, starring Olivia Newton-John and Gene Kelly, was nominated. Can't Stop the Music, starring Bruce Jenner and the Village People, won the first Razzie. Oddly, Douglas Carter Bean, the author of The Little Dog Laughed and The Nance, well, he decided to adapt Xanadu for the Broadway stage. Even more oddly, the show was a critical success and a Tony nominee for Best Musical in 2008. Having missed that original production, I finally had a chance to catch up with this oddity while visiting Colorado. The Denver Center for the Performing Arts has scheduled Xanadu for a six-month run in its cabaret room, the Garner Galleria Theater. Table service is available for drinks and snacks. Let's just agree that a relaxed environment, coupled with a nice cocktail, is probably the ideal way to see this musical. While Xanadu the movie was a box office failure, the soundtrack was a huge commercial success, 
with the song Magic topping the charts. The plot is a mashup of the original movie and the mythological fantasy film Clash of the Titans. Sonny is an artist who is dissatisfied with his sidewalk mural of the Greek muses. He decides to kill himself. Cleo, the youngest and perkiest muse, convinces her sisters to travel to Venice Beach to inspire Sonny. She uses roller skates, leg warmers, and an Australian accent as catalysts for motivational coaching. Sonny decides that he can combine all of the arts, plus something athletic, into one spectacular entertainment, a roller disco. The show's original six sisters have been trimmed down to three for this version, but still include one male in drag. The hunky Sonny wears short shorts and a tank top. Jokes are squarely aimed at theater geeks. Here's a quote. So grand, so earnest, so preposterous. It's like Andrew Lloyd Webber. In this jukebox of average tunes, the song Whenever You're Away From Me was a performance standout. Now it's time to take your temperature. Are you semi-interested in seeing Xanadu or hell no, we won't go? This production has been directed and choreographed by Joel Farrell. Xanadu needs to be breezy, efficient, and silly to work. Overall, I would say the mission has been accomplished. Lauren Sheely as Cleo and Marco Robinson as Sonny had nice chemistry and solid roller skating skills. It's Miss Sheely's show to carry, and she gave good goddess. Aaron Vega also did a nice turn in multiple roles, including theater owner Danny, Zeus, and Amuse. Early on during the performance I saw, there was a fire alarm followed by a theater evacuation. The poor art gallery next door was flooding from their overhead sprinklers. After the fire department all clear, we return to our seats and our drinks. Xanadu takes a while to showcase its minimal charms, but most of this audience came back. Did they desperately need to hear? Suddenly the wheels are in motion, and ah, 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 I'm ready to sail any ocean? Doubtful, but it does have a catchy hook. Is this lightweight concoction really a Broadway-caliber musical? Hard to say. I can confidently state, however, that placing this campy 90-minute review into a cabaret is exactly the format this show needs to continue to live on. The oft-repeated ELO, that's Electric Light Orchestra, well, that oft-repeated lyric from a song in Xanadu sums it up best. Oh, what a strange magic. Now let's go to the Looking Glass Theater in Chicago and a new play called Acts of God. As the mother, Shannon Cochran's character informs us early on that she believes God is a woman. How can she not be? If a man really were the divine deity, he would have taken an eternity to create a blade of grass then boast about it for twice as long. A promising start of whimsical hilarity kicks off Acts of God by Looking Glass ensemble member Kareem Bandiali. Unfortunately for this ambitious play, the momentum fizzles out over the course of its three acts. The family at the center of the story lives near the desert. They are simply labeled as mother, father, eldest, and youngest. Middle 
brings fiancé to meet them. A magical envelope has arrived in the mail. No one can seem to open it. Quickly they learn that this envelope affects the house's power supply. Eventually opened, there's an unclear message, so it appears that we are headed to a spiritual farce. Then the family dysfunction explodes. Eldest is an atheist and a lesbian. Middle is a nerd trying to please. Youngest is the jock. Mother bemoans that father, quote, robbed me of my youth with his sperm, unquote. We hear lines such as, you are a wilting, whiny, sniveling tragedy. Also, mother is 90% smothering and 10% guilt trips. God stuff comes in and out of the story. Who knew he farted so much? The quote, Why am I second to the divine gas bag? This already overcooked melodrama, heavily laced with farce, then goes far off the rails. The siblings fight, indiscretions happen, and father sleeps through the second act before this play launches into absurdist territory. After a very long, mind-numbing monologue, the third act crawls to a big yet unsatisfying finale. The glacially devolving storyline and lack of focus distanced me completely from caring about these characters or their predicaments. An abundance of ideas cannot make up for murky playwriting. Miss Cochran as the ferociously tough feminist mom and Christina Vallada Viers as the eldest daughter achieved the most fully realized personas. They are both strong women in perhaps the best written roles. While the whole cast works hard to sell this material, the mood swings and plot turns are too frequent. Mother warns, don't embarrass me in front of God. I didn't see any embarrassment in Mr. Bandelay's wide-ranging writing. He certainly can craft sharp one-liners. Often, however, I found myself confused and bored, despite the occasional bright sunbeams from heaven. There is just not enough sizzle to recommend or endure three acts of God. Back to New York, I headed off-off-Broadway downtown to La Mama, the first of two visits to that theater this month. This play was called Dying in Boulder. A nice segue from Denver, Colorado, if I do say so myself. A very pregnant woman is helping her family cope with mother's impending death from stage four cancer. Dad teaches Tai Chi. Mom is a painter. Her aunt is an actress who has just arrived to offer support to her dying sister. Jane is a Buddhist and wants a burial cremation involving a bonfire, not hospice care. The doorbell rings. The simple pine box coffin has arrived. Aunt Lydia is named Death Coordinator. There is going to be dying in Boulder. The attractive set design by Hugh Swan Chen is dominated by a large Japanese-style rock garden. The tranquility of the space suggests a place for meditation and calm. Aunt Lydia is troubled by the family's preparation for her sister Jane's death, only to hear what she needs now is comfort, not hope. Linda Fago Hall's play examines our fear of death 
using comedy to hold a mirror to Western practices and beliefs. Jane's deathbed wishes include a karmic cleansing. She'd rather not take her issues into the afterlife. Slow deaths are a blessing as there's time for atonement. She wants to have private heart-to-heart chats with everyone. One family member never returned after their talk. Dying in Boulder begins as a dark comedy which explores our reactions to end-of-life care. Max arrives to offer support for her journey to the next phase of existence. Jane had attended his workshop, The Buddhist Way to Die, Part 1. For every lighthearted joke, there are also deeper musings which emerge. There is no shame in growing old. It's part of being human. The first act swings unevenly between humor and wisdom. Flashbacks, often laced with jokes, are used to fill in backstories. Some are silly, others are appalling, which at least gives the play a jolt of adrenaline. The second act veers uncomfortably from light and slightly edgy comedy to a much darker place. Jane may be a dying Buddhist, but she has some deathbed cruelty to administer. Sordid family secrets and baggage have to be aired out before the karmic cleansing will be complete. The soap opera unfolds, and comedy takes a backseat to a laundry list of familial slights and life regrets. Although the deathbed one-on-one conversations were foretold in the first act, nothing suggested the extent of the dramatic overload which came later. As daughter Nikki, Mallory Ann Wu successfully navigated her character's conflicts and emotions. Resigned to her mother's impending death, she becomes the moral center of the play. Can the next generation learn from the mistakes of previous ones? Is forgiveness possible or even necessary? After questioning her own upbringing, and now about to have a baby, can she make family her passion, rather than a career? Miss Fago Hall has written a play filled with the thoughts and absurdities of life imperfectly lived. The imperfection is in the eye of the beholder. The regret may be in the mind of the dying. The uneasy mix of sitcom laughs and stinging family dysfunction ultimately hinders the play's focus. The consideration of one's own dying in Boulder is an interesting notion worthy of exploration. I hope mine is funnier with histrionics kept to a minimum. Now another off-Broadway play at Artspace PS109. Identity is the name. Some people go to therapy to work out their stuff, Nicholas Linehan informs at the start of his autobiographical play, Identity. Not him. Instead, I write plays to fix myself. Before the first scene even starts, his character named Mike is laying bare his emotions for the audience to see. A man with a mild case of cerebral palsy and dysarthritic speech, he points out that he is different from us. And deep down inside, I guess I'm praying I'm really not. The play opens with Mike restrained on a hospital bed. Why is he there? What has happened? In a series of flashback scenes, the audience is taken on a journey to comprehend, understand, and empathize with life as a disabled person. His particular road is made even more difficult as Mike is also a gay man. 
Admittedly, a terrible athlete, despite Dad's dreams for baseball glory, he instead found his home run in theater. Thankfully, he has shared his trials and tribulations in this original, heartfelt, and engrossing confessional. The fourth wall is broken repeatedly throughout Mr. Linehan's play. His asides are wry and often hilarious. As a straight-A ten-year-old, By the way, I'm supposed to be much younger now. He stops and asks, Am I giving an Oscar-worthy performance here? The jokes are frequent and effectively draw us in closer to his quirky and playful personality. When he turns serious and peels back yet another layer for us to examine, the drama is vivid and quietly devastating. Mike is living in the crack somewhere between abled and disabled. As a result, he doesn't feel part of the normal world if it even exists. In a scene loaded with emotional transparency, he wishes for just one more affectation of his disease, just to belong. Mike's search for his identity is the basis for this play. What makes this riveting theater is the performance itself. He takes his audience by the hand and does not lecture. He doesn't demand empathy and is occasionally off-putting in his bitterness and self-deprecation. The effect achieved allows us to see a real, imperfect, and articulate human being sharing a complicated journey. Identity certainly confronts the hard knocks of growing up, but is ultimately a celebration of life and the dreams which give us hope. At intermission, Mike confided, You are all part of this crazy thing I call a play. The story centers on three key figures from his past, mom, dad, and a doctor. Dad, played by Tim Connell, is a largely one-dimensional tyrant, but seems to have been written that way since these scenes are extracted from Mr. Linehan's memories. Amy Liska's endearing, chain-smoking mom is the more sympathetic parent, but even she struggles with unequivocal love and support. It is no surprise that the doctor, here played by Matthew Tyler, is perhaps the most important character on this stage. His eyes are our window into the clinical and distancing part of this expressively therapeutic play. Christopher Scott directed Identity with a loosely informal style, but with clearly defined scenes ranging from naturalistic to abstractly provocative. In the small and quite nice basement theater at El Barrio Art Space, Mike's parents try to grasp whether their son is happy. His doctor also wonders the same thing. At the end of this memorable tale, Mr. Linehan turns to the audience and asks, Am I happy? It's worth your time to find out the answer in this uniquely fascinating work. The second show this month at La Mama was titled 55 Shades of Gay, Vulcan Spring of Sexual Revolution. New York City is preparing to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots while hosting World Pride in June. Running at La Mama is a piece which examines the state of gay rights in the Balkans. The program notes that 55 Shades of Gay, Balkan Spring of Sexual Revolution, is the first theater company from Kosovo invited to share their work with an American audience. This play so enraged a member of their Ministry of Justice 
that he publicly called for the beheading of its cast. The question asked by this production, is sexual liberation possible in the Balkans? A cast member approaches the audience at the beginning of this show. If you are homophobic, a Christian fundamentalist, or a fascist, you are encouraged to leave the theater. What follows is not easy to describe. The play is a political burlesque meant to shock, push buttons, entertain, point out hypocrisy, and maybe even open some minds to eliminating discrimination once and for all. An Italian company has come to a very provincial town in order to build a condom factory which will provide 200 jobs. One of these foreigners has fallen in love with a local man. He applies for a marriage license, supposedly allowed by the country's European Union-approved constitution. A wall of outrage erupts from intellectuals, politicians, religious leaders, and even professional grenade launchers. They work hard to keep the wedding from happening. Even Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel is vilified for her stance on same-sex marriage. The small town's mayor looks to distract the public's attention away from this thorny issue. He devises a scheme to plant palm trees despite the fact that climate is wrong. Being called crazy for planting palm trees is preferable to being labeled the town of the buttfuckers. Aggressively absurdist in style, this piece does not shy away from controversy. Kill the faggots is a frequently repeated mantra. Perhaps it's time for a new Catholic Inquisition, they ponder. The targets for ridicule are many and far-ranging. Equal parts flamboyant exaggeration and furious indignation, Fifty-Five Shades of Gay is a jumble of styles, languages, and music. Some scenes are played for laughs, while others are intentionally provocative. A tree across the street from the municipal building occasionally comments on the action occurring in the registrar's office. Even the typewriter has thoughts. Some songs, and the color pink, are thrown into this quite energetic, and also frenetic, spectacle. As a reminder of the continued evolution of equal rights, Fifty-Five Shades of Gay is an interesting piece of theatrical experimentation. The five Kosovar actors, particularly the lovelorn Tristan Halalaj, managed to present nicely drawn characterizations and cartoons amidst the grotesquerie and satire. Overall, the performance feels a bit long, likely due to repetition in the storytelling. Head downtown to La Mama if you want to see the Kendra Multimedia Theater Company challenge the status quo. A friend recently commented that the struggle for gay rights is now over since the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage. This show reminds us that the voices of oppression are alive and thriving. One cast member says, Their hatred is hysterical. It makes me laugh. Here is an opportunity to laugh about no laughing matter. Now we get to welcome a big star to the New York stage at the Atlantic Theater Company. The play is called The Mother. Isabelle Huppert is sitting on a very long white couch when you take your seat for the mother. The couch stretches the length of the stage. Lots of pill bottles are stashed underneath in half a dozen places. Are they all empty? 
Mother is reading a book, looks bored, and occasionally nods off. Clearly, there are going to be seismic issues on display in Florin Zeller's play, The Mother, which has been translated by Christopher Hampton. A few seasons ago, his companion piece, The Father, was on Broadway starring Frank Langella. That memorable play dealt with Alzheimer's. The focus here is depression. Mother seems a bit cantankerous when her husband comes home from work. He's played by Chris Knopf. Her messages to him are not muddled. You are a pathetic father, I've been meaning to tell you. Her son is told that cowardice is in the genes. Her truth-telling moves even further down the dark path of meanness. Sometimes I have dreams about murdering you. They're my favorite dreams. This mother is a middle-aged woman whose children have long since moved away and her husband works while she sits at home. She is certain he is having an affair. A four-day seminar provokes further suspicion. The play's structure is not linear, and scenes often repeat with slight variations. Father comes home again to the same arguments and accusations. We become immersed and confused alongside the stormy places in her head, clouded by pills and paranoia. The road is unstable, hazy, and uncomfortably embarrassing to witness. What does a mother do when her children no longer need her and have moved on with their lives? The extremely long white couch on stage signifies the great chasm in the relationship between her and her husband. Mother is obviously depressed, unhappy, and feeling alone. Her relationship with her son is awkwardly touchy. His girlfriend is described as vulgar and ugly physically. Scenes cross, collide, repeat, and vary, but mother never seems to heal. The depression is all-consuming. It has become life's purpose. Miss Huppert's performance is big and quite fun to watch. You can presume some of the rabbit holes she will fall down into as she unravels. The plot evolution is not exactly surprising, but the herky-jerky storytelling gives this character study an unusual spin. Sadly, many of us know what it's like to listen to Mom's late-in-life revelations. An oft-repeated personal favorite of mine is... If I had to do it all over again, I never would have had children. Miss Huppert seemed to be exaggerated versions of those individuals who are doomed to drown in a sea of life's regrets. Trip Coleman directed the mother, so you cannot look away. The tension does not let up even when there is humor in the script. I found the unstable narrative of this play nicely matched with the unreliable mental condition of the protagonist. Nice supporting performances by Mr. Knopf, Justice Smith as the son, and Odessa Young as the girl add to the swirling disorientation of this interesting play. And now it's time for Duncan Sheik's new musical at MCC Theatre. The title is Alice by Heart. Surely books are made to linger in, notes Alice at the beginning of this new musical. Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is one such book which is embraced again and again. There have been so many adaptations and interpretations of this story. Alice by Heart 
begins in London's underground in 1941, admits the Blitz during World War II. The atmospheric set design by Edward Pierce nicely evokes a dark, cavernous, yet claustrophobic shelter. Bombs are exploding as the story begins. The people in this particular shelter are all coping with their fears. Alfred is quite ill and expected to die from tuberculosis. Despite admonitions to stay away, Alice decides to help him pass the time and hopefully heal by reading through Alice in Wonderland. When the nurse destroys her book, she has to recall the story by memory, hence the title Alice by Heart. The production quickly shifts to a loose adaptation. The most interesting aspect of this musical is the parallel paths taken by Alice Spencer slash Alice down the rabbit hole. The book, written by Stephen Sater and director Jesse Nelson, links the growing up quandary of the classic tale to the harsh realities of growing up too early in a dark world of evil. At her trial before the Queen of Hearts, played by Grace McLean, who was excellent, the song Isn't It a Trial sums up the sad reality. I heard multiple meanings in the lyric, Isn't it a trial to try and stay a child? From the innocence of youth to the adult denial of aging. Twenty songs are crammed into this 90-minute show. Many of them are memorable, notably Chillin' the Regrets and The Key Is, performed in the slinky caterpillar scene. The creativity in the staging is additive to the fun. In order to create an outer shell for the mock turtle, the cast utilizes green soldier helmets. The show feels like a series of ideas and captivating visuals without a center core to truly flesh out this particular retelling. The opening blitz scene happens so quickly that we do not get invested in our central couple of Alice and Alfred, nor with any other characters. Maybe a more expansive book would help glue the story together and make the plot lines clearer. Scenes between Alice and the Cheshire Cat seemed to be critically important for the narration and summation of the most important learnings. Instead, the songs Some Things Fall Away and Winter Blooms were flat and uninspired. Without a great core, Alice by Heart simply exists to offer some very entertaining musical numbers. The choreography by Rick and Jeff Cooperman is eminently watchable with intricate movements and clever tongue-in-cheek flourishes. The famous cast of characters that populate Wonderland are allowed to dominate the show, which also dilutes the main storyline. But what a cast of characters to enjoy. Extra praise has to be given to Andrew Kober, who played the King of Hearts and Jabberwocky, Colton Ryan, who was Alfred and the White Rabbit, Heath Saunders as the Caterpillar, and especially Wesley Taylor, who played the Mad Hatter and others. This creatively staged but underdeveloped musical is fun, even if it did not achieve the promise of its dark premise. Our next play is produced by Women's Project, also known as WP Theater. I'll spell the title first. H-A-T-E-F asterisk asterisk K. So I'm going to assume that is pronounced hate fuck. 
Imran is a successful novelist hosting a writer's book lunch at home. Retreating to his living room, Layla follows him to introduce herself. There is immediate sexual tension, despite some differences of opinion. The banter eventually leads to, I was hoping I could fuck you into a different person. For every line that surprises and hate fuck, there are ten riddled with cliches, lecturing, or banalities. Both characters have a Muslim heritage, but describe themselves as non-practicing. Layla is a professor wanting to be published. She has a serious nonfiction book which tells meaningful stories about their people. He writes bestsellers where his kind are depicted as dark-skinned terrorists. The conflict is fairly obvious. Why is Imran writing to placate white people's assumption of Islam? It repulses her, but oddly excites her as well. In multiple scenes between erotic couplings, the two develop a deeper attraction despite a wide gap in their belief systems. Why is she hanging around? That manipulative angle is the most interesting part of this play, but is not significant enough to flesh out these thinly drawn characters. Instead of writing terrorist fiction, she comments, Why not write about you and me, the slutty non-Muslims? He tells her, You're a fucking rainbow killer. The dialogue is painfully forced and often as implausible as the story arc. Sentil Ramamurthy admirably objects a naturalistic believability to Imran. He is successful, sexy, and an embodiment of the American dream. He is living the life and having a good time while doing so. Wanting his books to be on Layla's syllabus at Wayne State University is a repeated plot hook which never makes any sense. As Layla, Kavi Ladnier has to be likably indignant with a subtext of social climber tacked on. The role is too preachy to be believable. If the competing sexual and literary conquests between the two of them were less rom-com, this combination might be a more compelling study. As it stands now, Hate Fuck is just another play about opposites, this time with a Muslim twist. The topic is admirable and relevant, but that doesn't make the play a good one. Additional roles might have broadened the narrow scope of this work to make this lecture more appealing. I found myself siding with Imran, who has grabbed capitalism by the horns, despite a questionable moral compass. As written by Rehana Lumirza, his motivation seemed clear, if objectionable. When the play ended, I was not sure either character grew or learned anything. I know I didn't. Now it's time to test your memory skills. Do you remember the song Skinnamarink? Skinnamarink-a-dink-a-dink, Skinnamarink-a-doo. Well, the next show we're going to talk about is at the New York Theater Workshop's smaller space called Next Door at NYTW. The play Skinnamarink. I remember SRA color-coded reading cards from elementary and middle school. You worked through a section independently and then moved to the next color after successful completion. These self-directed lessons were pervasive in 1960 and 1970 classrooms. Nerd alert, I recall loving them. Before that, McGuffey's eclectic readers were the dominant graded primers from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century. 
theater company Little Lord has created the inconceivably enjoyable Skinnamarink based primarily on these books. From the 1830s, McGuffey's readers helped standardize English language usage in the United States. 122 million books were reportedly sold by 1925. More Americans learned to read from this series, which, not surprisingly, reflected and shaped moral values of the 19th century. The first book starts with the dog. The dog ran. Words are accompanied by a picture. Each lesson is progressively more difficult. At the end of the book, some questions and moral advice are tacked on. Have you taken good care of your book? Children should always keep their books neat and clean. Into the theater we now enter together. Everyone is given a name sticker. We are all John. Cast members emerge. One stands by the dunce cap. Another looks to be in time out. A third stands in the middle of the room. A fourth is lying on the ground in a yellow body outline. On to the lessons we go. Birds are in the nest. Nests are in the trees. A woman's voice on an intercom announces the next tasks such as roll call, exercise, or snacktivity. When the bell rings, it can simply be everyone yelling, Bell, bell, bell! What makes Skinnamarink work so effectively is the commitment to sending up childhood memories of school while commenting on universal brainwashing. About a larger female? Lucy is a greedy girl. Why is she a glutton? About behavior? I promise not to be a naughty little girl. Adding in the whimsical? It's just a vitamin D shot. Don't be so paranoid. If you can instantly recognize a math problem which begins, if a pound of prunes cost 13 cents today, then you will firmly connect with this material. Skin and Marink is absurdist theater and very, very funny. The entire cast is deadly serious in performing these increasingly silly and manic intervals. When we get to a conversation about which jobs a new colony needs, a farmer isn't obviously a good choice. One student suggests celebrity spokesperson. We don't need anyone to tell us what's interesting. We know what's interesting. The polish exhibited throughout this 75-minute comedy has to be credited to Little Lord's artistic director and performer, Michael Leventon, who also helmed the staging of this physically inventive piece. It's ritualistic, symbolic, idiotic, and smart. That combination is not easy to do this successfully. A couple of fun tunes like the title song and exceptionally strong lighting effects by Cha Si enliven this madcap variety show and tell. The end notes in McGuffey's first book state that your parents are very kind to send you to school. If you are good, and if you try to learn, your teacher will love you and you will please your parents. Herding cats into bland uniformity has always been an unfortunate byproduct of our educational system. But the follow-up line really speaks to American values. Quote, When you go home, you may ask your parents to get you a second reader. Unquote. I loved Skidamarink. It's a hilarious blast of brightly vivid creativity, a wicked skip down memory lane, 
and an indictment on the persistently pushed cultural homogenation of our society. As for the future, quote, when there's nothing left here except for the recycling, you will know that I loved you, unquote. I have to end my review of Skinner Inc. with one word, bravo. Now back to Broadway for a little glitz and glamour, the musical, The Share Show. There are many reasons to recommend a visit to The Share Show. First and foremost is the subject matter herself. Without question, Cher is one of the top five divas of the last half century. The star power has been turned to high wattage for so long, from the early music hits with Sonny Bono to multiple television series. An acting career followed, culminating in an Oscar for Moonstruck. Her love affairs were tabloid fodder for years. So much material, so many iconic songs, and so much unforgettable fashion to choose from. Can this one-of-a-kind survivor story triumph as a Broadway jukebox musical biography? How do you find the right performer to pull off the feat of portraying a living and beloved icon who is still touring the world in concert? The conceit here is to have three actresses representing different stages of her life. There is Babe, played by Michaela Diamond, who meets Sonny, heads to the studio, and improbably shoots to number one with I Got You, Babe. The middle years are reflected through Lady, impressive understudy Di Roscioli. Well, Lady gains independence and control of her life, but it's star Cher who seemingly took bigger and bigger chances and made herself legendary. Stephanie J. Block is extraordinary in this part, adding layers of emotional depth and carrying the weight of the story on her back. All three certainly pay homage to Cher's unique mannerisms and vocal inflections, but they never veer to caricature. As first husband Sonny, Jared Spector received noticeable gasps of elated recognition from the audience. His performance is remarkable for capturing the essence and charm of this equally unique person. When this couple reenacts the patented banter from their television variety show, the humor, style, and physicality were spot on. Already, that seems like a lot to recommend the Cher show, especially for her legion of fans. Bob Mackey's costumes are undeniably sensational. They evoke fun and funny styles through the various decades, peaking with a parade of famous looks you may remember. I liked the set design by Christine Jones and Brett J. Benakis, and the lighting design by Kevin Adams. The Sunny and Cher Comedy Hour visuals were ideal replicas. The moving arcs and lighting effects gave Vegas glitz when necessary. Frequently, the shares are all alone or in small groups, so the set design also helps the show seem full enough for a Broadway stage. When the musical numbers are big, the ensemble delivers outstanding support here. The myriad of costumes showcase the fittest chorus in New York. The men are muscular, and the women have legs for days. With Bob Mackey dressing them, they all look spectacular. Ashley Bear Fitzgerald is Dark Lady during a dance in Act Two. Choreographed by Christopher Gatelli, 
This number is a jaw-dropping highlight of precision movement and lifts. Miss Fitzgerald's exceptional number, accompanied by her strong male partners, nearly stops the show. That moment is quite welcome because Act 2 takes some storytelling turns that slow momentum down considerably. The uneven book by Rick Elise is often funny and therapeutically heartfelt. Exposition, however, gets in the way as we traverse through this long career. The throwaway Lucille Ball scene and the overlong Greg Allman section, although memorably played by Matthew Hidzik, both those parts hurt the pacing considerably. What works exceptionally well in the book, however, was the three shared personalities woven throughout. Each comments on and supports the other through the highs and lows of a life lived in the spotlight. What nicely emerges is a memoir more than a biography. Admittedly, like her life, the share show is imperfect, yet endlessly entertaining when it hits a bullseye. The woman is a survivor. Someone once said, the only thing that will be left after a nuclear holocaust is share and cockroaches. The comment was brought up to her in an interview. She smiled and brilliantly replied that the quote seemed to sum it all up, didn't it? At the start of this musical, Star Share pulls us into her orbit and says, Let's do this, bitches. How can you resist? Now let's travel from the big-time Broadway stage and the glitz and glamour of the Share Show to downtown's Theater for the New City, and off-off-Broadway house. This is Sign in the Six O'Clock Sky. Subtitled, A Fable with Songs, Sign in the Six O'Clock Sky is about four sideshow performers from 1933 who find themselves in a time warp, not knowing how they got there. Combining a circus sideshow with the word surreal usually gets my attention, so I decided to see this premiere at the Theater for the New City. The set, by Sonia Plenifish, is promising. Is this the moon? A rocky beach? Posters for three performers are displayed. One act is the human pincushion, another the strongman. Those two are played by Robert Homeyer and Michael Giorgio. The lady is billed as Aphrodite. She is played by Jessica Lorian. After a dreamy opening, four stranded people are lamenting that time is so old and slow. They are clearly past their physical prime. The Great Depression has made their lives miserable. We're just two slices of bologna away from a bread line. He's a snail's breath away from panic. Are they lost? Dead? Part of a mass hysteria? Punished for breaking the rules? While trying to figure that out, they rehearse musical numbers from their show with the blind piano-playing Dr. Raven, played by David Shakopi. The first one of Dan Furman's songs is a ditty about strolling down the avenue. Why is the human pincushion also a song and dance man? No idea. Back to the story. Are they on an island? They do a quick search but learn nothing. A young Wall Street CEO, played by Michael A. Green, well, he arrives in a business suit carrying a cell phone, which is not working. What started as mysterious, if nonsensical, immediately embraces the ridiculous. 
written by twice Oscar-nominated screenwriter Arnold Schulman, who was Oscar-nominated for Love and the Proper Stranger and Goodbye Columbus. This philosophical mumbo-jumbo gets thick and preposterous fast. One-dimensional characters recite lines meant to be reflective, but just sound banal. The Wall Street guy makes his fortune buying and selling numbers. No one will deal with me if I didn't have an $80,000 watch. He's from 2019, and, after meeting his fellow strandees, he reconsiders his historical understanding of the Depression. I had no idea it impacted real people. If this were farce, rather than deadly serious, perhaps these stereotypes might be worth a chuckle. Oddly, and improbably, Mr. Money falls hard and fast for Aphrodite, a self-described whore who proclaims, I look at men the way a cow looks at butchers. How can these two find a common ground for love? Without whores and corruption, nothing in this world would ever get done. Director Sheila Zorigos of the Zorigos Performing Company has this cast playing this as serious drama. I would rethink the plan completely. Imagine the reaction this psychobabble would receive if Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy were inhabiting these people as bizarre cartoons. Alas, that is not the case. More than half of the audience left at intermission. This particular smorgasbord of the human condition has it all. Alcoholism, prostitution, depression, blindness, the occult, and repentance. They talk and talk and talk. Someone finally says, what is a real conversation anyway? One is not to be found in this play. For those people who skipped the second act, you missed this quote. Like Kafka, I live only to find the deep hidden yes underneath the no. The reply? If you really look under the no, you'll find something delicious. The latter stages of the play include a twist of sorts, which comes far too late despite a solid portrayal by Michael Neal Johnson. What is the sign in the six o'clock sky? Another unneeded song repeats the line, I claim the night, and ponders windows in the sky. There's a quote, Why don't I ever understand a thing you say? That quote best describes this complete misfire of a play. Next, I headed to the Flea Theater and the play Southern Promises. The front of the plantation is a large image which is tilted forward from the stage at the Flea Theater. At the start of Southern Promises, the audience leans into a conversation between the master and his wife. On his deathbed, he now concludes that the abolitionists are right. Slavery is a mortal sin and a blight on our civilization. He has changed his will to emancipate all of his slaves after he passes. It does not take long until the missus changes that plan. She has different desires entirely. Thomas Bradshaw's incendiary 2008 play is being revived with POC casting, as in people of color. In the thoughtful prelude, the cast introduces themselves speaking about the contradictions and considerations of being non-white individuals performing in all sides of this story. An interesting angle is presented. 
If a person is half white and half black, which role are they most suited for? Are there new insights to be gained from this production? Influenced by The Great Escape's four slave narratives, some of the dialogue is lifted from those writings. The play is relentless in its depiction of predictable atrocities, including rape, whipping, forced nudity, and murder. The in-your-face depiction is likely why this play was considered so provocative. America's existence is still marred by this history. I'm not convinced that Southern promises a revival that accomplishes anything more than theatrical shocks, however. There is a contemporary field of director Neagle Smith's staging, such as the choice of music for the interludes. Some of the cast has Southern accents, others do not. As written and performed, the play telegraphs every scene so you know exactly what is going to happen, crushing any sense of dramatic storytelling. There are some impressive visuals for sure, but the odd contradictions and decreasingly believable storyline neutralize the power of the subject matter. A brother of the deceased is a preacher from New York who comes to visit and believes abolition is the worst thing for these niggers. With freedom, they drink all day and look for white women to rape at night. This play speaks frankly and roughly throughout. In the same scene, the house slaves of a plantation sneak sips of mint juleps behind their master's back. Benjamin is the mild-mannered type, but is directed to chug a lug like a buffoon before he is caught. Huh? The hypocrisy of the religious smears its ugliness all over this play. This theme allowed this material to shine a harshly critical spotlight on people who justify their actions with the simple phrase, It's God's will. The prayer scenes, however, are overlong and exaggerated. Rather than coming across as disturbingly devout and sadly delusional, the villains appear clownish. If this entire play was staged as edgy farce, that might make sense. The last few scenes of the play strain credibility and Southern Promises loses its dramatic focus. I have experienced so many exceptional theater pieces over the last five years where I had to face our troubled racist history and its import today. The segregated theme park in three-fifths, Jackie Sibley's Drury's Fairview, and her new play Mary Seacole, an Octoroon, Underground Railroad Game, even the improbable comedy Plantation at Looking Glass Theater Company in Chicago. When the Kansas song, Carry On My Wayward Son, transitioned one of the scenes, I wondered if the choice was meant to be funny. There are moments in Southern Promises that are memorable. There are definitely scenes that are shocking as intended. Without a consistent tone, the subject matter gets diluted and grinds to an anticlimactic finish. This revival does not make a case for the play as important as the troubled history it wants us to aggressively confront. Now it's time for the second of the three encore musical revivals we'll get this spring. This one was I Married an Angel. A successful Rodgers and Hart musical from 1938, I Married an Angel has been lovingly brought to life for one week as part of the encore series. George Balachine was the original choreographer of this show, Vera Zorino was Angel, and married him during the run. 
the piece is decidedly old school and dated, but this fine, glossy production allows musical theater fans an opportunity to revisit the silly chestnut. In Budapest, Count Willie Palafi, here played by Mark Evans, he's a successful banker but is having difficulties with women. Nikki M. Jane's portrays his sister, the Countess Palafi. She's trying to find him a spouse. Willie decides that he will only marry an angel. Miraculously, one arrives from heaven and wedded bliss unfolds. Unfortunately on earth and in the real world, a truth-telling perfectionist can cause all sorts of problems. Those slips include insulting an older woman with honesty about her appearance, as well as disclosing problems at her husband's bank. Mr. Balanchine had been actively participating in the evolution of the Broadway musical at this time. Two years earlier, he had a smash hit with On the Town, which featured the Slaughter on 10th Avenue Ballet. Incorporating dance and storytelling on Broadway would advance further in the 40s with Agnes DeMille and Jerome Robbins. I Married an Angel is firmly part of important musical theater history. The show features creative dances, such as the geography-traveling honeymoon ballet and the multiple fantasy sections in the second act. Storytelling purists might wonder why a show set in Budapest celebrates and pokes fun at New York's cavernous Roxy Music Hall. This was the time when Radio City first opened. The Roxyettes became significantly more famous when they switched venues and were renamed the Rockettes in 1935. Any opportunity to find space for dance is embraced in this show. The serious research employed in producing this revival, including original music, scripts, notes, and footage, transports the audience back to another age. Not all of the humor is appropriate today. There are certainly jokes about women and what the phrase going for a walk in the garden really implies. The sexual innuendo overall seemed generally harmless. A subplot between the Countess, formerly a young teenage actress, and the wealthy Harry Sagetti, played by Tom Robbins, well, this subplot references a prior relationship when she was 15 years old. It's a tad icky, but well handled, and frankly shines some insight on that era. Directed and choreographed by Joshua Ragas, his wife, New York City Ballet's Sarah Mearns, is an on-point angel. All of the dancing in the show was extremely entertaining. The scene stealers Haley Podshun and Philip Atmore lead the first act showstopper, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Tap and ballet share the stage with more humorous vignettes. There is a real feeling of being transported back to an entertainment style from long ago. I Married an Angel is a perfect choice for the 25th anniversary of this series. Where else can you see such magic resurrected with this level of quality and polish? As Count Willie, Mark Evans confidently joins the ever-increasing list of outstanding male leads who deliver great character performances at encores. His singing and acting were very strong and nicely fit the period. Broadway does not create enough roles and traditional Broadway song styles for these talented individuals. Watching them excel and breathing life into these old theater treasures is a major reason to enjoy these revivals. The creative team has given the show a beautiful staging, notably with Alejo Vietti's costumes. 
for dedicated fans of musical theater who embrace the rare opportunity to see a hit show exhumed from 1938, I Married an Angel was catnip. As a bonus, there's even an opportunity to learn a few things about women. The question posed, are all women bad? The answer, only the good ones. Now we'll travel as far from musical theater comedy froth that we can and head downtown to Greenwich Village for Strangers in the World. Productions by the Axis Theater Company can confidently be relied upon to have atmospheric moodiness. Written and directed by Randy Sharp, Strangers in the World imagines a time when New England was being colonized by Puritans. In 1613, a small group arrives and builds a poorly constructed village near the shoreline. Years pass, and the remaining survivors seem to be going mad with grief, starvation, and hopelessness. A plan is voted upon to head south with their remaining possessions in search of a chance for a better life. The setting for this play is a cold forest. The supply of food is dwindling. Clipped, bitter, and angry conversations between these colonists suggest life's pressures have overwhelmed their ability to cope. All the children are dead. The vision of creating a model society devoted to godliness has long been determined a failure. These Puritans wear their devoutness like a shield of battle armor, however. A visitor arrives on the shoreline apparently alone, his boat sunk to the bottom of the sea. In stark contrast to their dark brown attire, his lightly colored clothing is tattered. Should they be suspicious of him or not? Are more boats coming to save them? Might they be able to return home? What about the plan to travel south, even though the city is likely a godless place? From this outline, Strangers in the World swirls around like a cyclone, revealing these characters' inner turmoils, which are no longer invisible underneath their religious piety. Their shields are fragile. Madness is evident. Sexual oppression and murderous thoughts cannot be contained. The interesting conflict here is the juxtaposition of idealized puritanical values and morals set against the harshness of failure and desperation. Additional subplots emerge, which enhance the claustrophobia of people trapped in their lives. Is this new visitor a savior or a devil? The imagery and various meanings in this play prompt good post-theater conversation. The structure is far from linear, and can be repetitive in depicting madness verging on hysteria. The entire cast nicely embodies these frighteningly damaged souls and allows us to see them as different individuals caught in a collective nightmare. As previously mentioned, there is an abundance of atmospheric moodiness in this production. The theme of repression peppers the entire play. There are moments where I feared the story was going to dangerously approach caricature. In the end, however, the theatrical risk-taking pays off. This unusual play can be recommended for adventurous theatergoers who enjoy filling in the details. Imagine traveling to a new world and failing to survive. Spouses and children are dead. The food is scarce. A blinding devotion to questionable dogma. The fear of the unknown crippling any chance to find a better life. Quite a bit of emotional ground is covered through these irreparably damaged souls. 
What does abject terror do to people? Strangers in the World suggests that darkness within the human soul is inescapably pervasive no matter how tight one clings to their god. Now I get to test my Spanish language speaking skills with the play El Coronel No Tiene Quien La Escriba at Harlem Stage. Based on a novella by Nobel Prize winner Gabriel Garcia Marquez, El Coronel No Tiene Quien La Escriba is being presented in Spanish with English supertitles by Repertorio Español. A veteran of Colombian Civil War, the colonel lives with his wife in a small village under martial law. They are impoverished and very hungry. Every Friday, he waits for the postmaster. A letter is supposed to arrive with his pension from the war. No mail has arrived for 15 years, hence the story's title, which translates as, No One Writes to the Colonel. Director Jorge Ali Triana adapted this story with Veronica Triana. The play opens inside the couple's humble home. It is still winter and the rains are persistent. The colonel's spouse has asthma and is losing patience with his waiting for a check that never arrives. She sums it up, we're rotting alive. The action begins with the funeral procession for a recently deceased local musician, the first natural death in a long time. The situation is gloomy. The colonel's son was murdered at a cockpit, and there is a shrine to him on the wall. His rooster is the only possession still owned by his parents. Do they continue to feed the bird while they remain hungry? There is an expectation that a winning rooster will be worth more money in a few months after training to be a prize fighter. Pride for his son is certainly a factor in this decision. This melancholic tale is beautifully told in this production. The set designer Raul Abrego uses simple objects and minimal fuss to create clearly defined scene changes. A table turned one way is for the home, turned 90 degrees in the scene is an office. The rainy season thematically weighs heavily down on an environment of constant repression. Every actor in this production delivers a naturalistic performance. As the colonel, Sebastian Ospina's quiet dignity and proud stature makes his unbending patience believable and heartbreaking. Zulema Clares is a spousa, the spouse. The years of disappointment and the struggles of day-to-day living can be seen in her every move, word, and cough. Thoughtful details enhance the viewing pleasures. When the doctor, portrayed by Luis Carlos de la Lombana, comes for a visit, he carries an umbrella and looks backwards towards the ground. At first, I thought there may have been something on the floor by the audience he was carefully avoiding. After the house call, he leaves the same way, but carefully steps around the puddles he spotted earlier. Not only is that an interesting choice, it also helps frame survival in a society with curfews under martial law. Here is one man who is more fortunate and with an important career. He manages to better traverse the rains pouring down all over his people. Woven through this evocative piece is the lovely bond which holds a marriage together. Despite their differences and a lifetime of disappointments, the deep relationship is evident and unspoken. These are forgotten citizens discarded in a world filled with corruption and bureaucracy. Mr. Marquez, a politically liberal writer, 
wants us to see societal unfairness. This play and these performers offer a moving tribute in a truly memorable staging. I'm now down to the last five reviews for a month that has been filled with theater, obviously. The first of the last five is the Broadway play Network. The 1976 Academy Award-winning film Network was a broad satire on television, its news programming, and society in general. Lee Hall has adapted Patty Chayefsky's celebrated screenplay for the stage. What is perhaps most striking is that the story seems less satirical and more grounded in our current reality. Imagine in America whose citizens want their television personalities to express their rage out loud. According to anchorman Howard Beale, the world is a demented slaughterhouse. His viewership is poor and he gets fired. On his program, he announces a plan to kill himself on air the following week. Ranting and raving about all of life's bullshit, his ratings begin to increase. He morphs into an angry prophet denouncing the hypocrisy of our times. The people respond. He may be off his rocker, but good ratings equal good profits. Brian Cranston is riveting in the role that won Peter Finch a posthumous Oscar. There is a scene where the camera is rolling and he cannot muster the focused, strength, courage, or words to begin speaking. It's just dead air and a tormented face. The television executives argue whether to cut him off. They don't, and what eventually follows is a superlative rant for the ages. Mr. Cranston is so good in the madman crazy sections that the latter stages of the play seem a tad too sane. I'll admit that the story arc does seem quite believable today. Unfortunately, much of what surrounds this enthralling performance is either innocuously bland or annoyingly distracting. As director, Yvonne Van Hove often stages plays with multimedia projections. For a show about the medium of television, this makes sense. The parade of television commercials from the 1970s is fun, especially when Mr. Cranston is off stage and you want something interesting to pay attention to. On stage, there are theater goers on one side sitting at a bar. Network backstage operations are filled with people, screens, and electronics on the other side. With much of Mr. Cranston's performance projected on screen, there are studio employees milling about, often blocking the actors from view. The recorded music and other assorted noises, which blare out on speakers throughout the play, are simply annoying after a while. I suppose the frenetic staging is supposed to be disarming and purposely unfocused. The problem is that the excesses don't cover up the weaknesses well enough. The play as presented is over two hours without an intermission. At least 15 minutes could have been trimmed without losing any sense of style or substance. The actors surrounding Mr. Cranston competently say their lines, but real characters do not emerge. As Diana Christensen, Tatiana Maslany is not nearly as manipulative or ruthless as needed. We don't need to like her. She's a villain and a climber. Tony Goldwyn plays a bewildered Max Schumacher going through the motions of life without the necessary emotive conflicts to make us understand him. 
His passions are spoken about, but not evidenced. Their sex scene was hilarious, though. After the curtain call, snippets from the swearing-in ceremonies of United States presidents are shown. Images from more than half a century, finishing with Trump, who is predictably booed. This pandering to the theater audience is insipid. Did the creative team think we needed this coda to draw parallels to now? Excellent as Arthur Jensen, Nick Wyman appears as the wealthy network chairman who convinces Howard Beale to become a television prophet. His scene is set on a high platform suggesting a godlike figure. His worldview is not based on countries anymore, but is a collage of corporations. Presumably, the Trump footage was intended to highlight that viewpoint in bold. Network can be recommended as very good theater, particularly notable for Brian Cranston's extraordinary performance. If you don't know the story from the film, that is another reason to go. The show suffers a little from technological excess as the images become more important than the people. It's theatrical for sure, but not necessarily more interesting or disturbing than what is broadcast on our televisions every day. Now we'll take a trip to the Park Avenue Armory, the play, The Layman Trilogy. Grabbing and greed can go on for just so long, but the breaking point is bound to come sometime. That quote is from Herbert Lehman, who was a partner at his family's firm from 1908 through 1928. He later became governor of New York and a U.S. senator. His part of the tale, told in the Lehman trilogy, is smack dab in the middle of the story. This three-act masterpiece begins before the Civil War and ends with the firm's demise in the financial crisis of 2008. The first part is subtitled Three Brothers. In 1844, Henry Lehman emigrated from Bavaria to the magical music box called America. By the time his two brothers followed, he had already established a business in Montgomery, Alabama, selling fabrics and suits. It didn't take them long to figure out how to get involved in the lucrative cotton business. Emmanuel headed north to New York, and the family connections to the cotton mills were established. Although their roots were in the South, and rebuilding was a profitable venture after the Civil War, the business relocated to the bustling economic juggernaut that was, and still is, New York City. In Part 2, fathers and sons expand their empire with shrewd strategic investments in railways, airplanes, and Hollywood. Emmanuel's son, Philip, is now running the show. In 1929, the firm was renamed the Lehman Corporation in recognition of another iteration of its changing business model to an investment company. This financially focused entity was based on pure money and pure adrenaline. Then the stock market crashed and the Great Depression ensued. The final part of this trilogy is The Immortal. Philip's son, Bobby, is now at the helm. Money is still being made investing in weapons of war, television, and computers. When Bobby ages out of the business in the 1960s, the company transitions to a series of non-family members. Trading becomes the dominant profit machine. The company gets ensnared in the subprime mortgage abomination. With no major political connections any longer, they are made an example of and left to die. 
The story of this firm's implosion is well known. The Lehman Trilogy remarkably tells this 150-year saga with three actors inhabiting all of the characters. They play all the Lehman men, their wives, children, other businessmen, and even the owner of a Greek diner in Nebraska. The amount of detail covered is staggeringly dense, yet simplistically clear to follow. The explanation of the business and its evolutions particularly in the first two acts, is exemplary storytelling. Simon Russell Beale, Adam Godley, and Ben Miles perform this three-hour and 20-minute two-intermission marathon without leaving the stage. And what a stage it is. In the enormous Park Avenue armory, set designer S. Devlin has created a spinning multi-room music box which looks like a conference room perched atop the world of privilege. A single piano underscores the dialogue. The actors are astonishing in their ability to inhabit so many people with incredible physical and vocal expressiveness. Sam Mendes directed this outstanding production with both brilliant style and focused storytelling. Everyone knows the ending. The firm dances through danger before spinning out of control. The visual representation of that is stunningly theatrical, disorienting, and nothing short of genius. The important thing is not to stop. Stop they did, however, with famous images of its employees carrying their file boxes out of the building at the end. In my corporate career, file boxes represented the storage of documents and business history. Here, they are creatively employed throughout in support of this epic. This piece is long and dense. If I had one small quibble, it would be with the third part. The business dealings and strategic machinations early on as the company grew were beautifully explained. When the crazy days of out-of-control money men arrived, the opportunity to elucidate the business model did not happen with the same ease. I assume that was an intentional choice in order to represent the heady, unregulated financial markets as a lunatic asylum. The Lehman Trilogy is highly recommended for theatergoers who enjoy superb actors giving outstanding performances. It's also highly recommended for those with a keen interest in tales of finance and American business. In our current time of immigrant bashing, it's also highly recommended as a tale of the American dream and the American nightmare. Now we'll head back downtown to the Wheelhouse Theatre Company, who last year had a home run with Happy Birthday Wanda June, the revival of a Kurt Vonnegut play. This one, titled Life Sucks. A month ago, I saw Austin Pendleton portray a teacher on Broadway in the fine play Choir Boy. Now he is the elderly professor with a much younger third wife. They are visiting with Sonia and Uncle Vanya in this adaptation of Chekhov's play. Right from the start, the cast informs that Life Sucks is about love and longing, true to the spirit of its source material. The professor notes, It's also about the audacious, ludicrous, and protean nature of the ostreperous and ever-feckless human heart. Vanya points out, He has a penchant for sesquipedalian elocution, Fans of wordplay will lick their chops listening to some of this dialogue. 
Aaron Posner, who wrote My Name is Asher Levy, spins an effective comedy out of these familiar characters and situations. Families are hardwired to totally upset each other. Lovesick dreamers are bound to be hurt with disappointment when their feelings are not mutual. Life Sucks attempts to answer the question, is love real or a man-made construct like religion or football? There are plenty of laughs throughout this production. The actors play characters who know they are in a play and often break the wall to speak directly to the audience. In a scene titled, Three Things I Love, permanent house guest Babs adds to her list, the crisp clink of cubes of ice in a really sturdy glass. The rampantly desirable Ella asks the question, How many of you would like to sleep with me if you could? Some hands were raised. Nearly everyone seems to be in love with Ella, including Pickles, who is somehow related to the family and an acquired taste. The script defines her as a relentlessly positive utopian lesbian. She takes things a bit literally. After one of the professor's acerbic barbs, she comments, It's sometimes hard to tell if you are complimenting us or insulting us. His sardonic reply, isn't it? In between jokes, there is all of the Chekhovian self-absorption, self-deprecation, and self-torture one could hope for. This playwright knows it is always fun to watch privileged, arrogant people argue endlessly about meaningless, esoteric minutiae. Swiftly directed by Jeff Wise, Life Sucks is fun theater. Each member of this cast nicely bears all of the angst boiling inside their characters. As Dr. Astor, Michael Schantz exudes all of the charm needed to woo an unsatisfied Ella. Too bad for Sonia, he's so desirable and uninterested. Maybe that's why she hates her body, her face, and the lie of literature. Astor tries to advise his dear friend Vanya, played by Jeff Beale, who is slathered in despair. The basic message to us all, if you don't like your life, then do something. My message to you. If you want to chuckle and watch a well-cast set of actors give the Chekhov clan another enjoyably silly update, then do something. Head downtown to the Wild Project and buy a ticket. We're all going to die eventually. Why not have a laugh or two before then? Those of you who regularly listen to this podcast know that I have a special affinity for older pieces of theater, older plays, exploring worlds from a hundred years ago, or even further back. Next up is the Red Bull Theater's revival of The White Devil. Written by John Webster in 1612, The White Devil belongs to the early modern genre of revenge tragedy. A crime spurs retaliation that inspires further revenge. The original full title is The White Devil or The Tragedy of Paolo Giordano Ursini, Duke of Bracciano, with the life and death of Victoria Carambona, the famous Venetian courtesan. The play is based on a true story involving infidelity, religion, and murder. The Duke of Bracciano is lustily obsessed with Vittoria Corombona, the daughter of a noble but impoverished Venetian family. Unfortunately, both are married. His wife is Isabella of the de' Medici clan. The Duke's secretary and Vittoria's brother, Flamineo, is the social climber type and wants his sister's fortunes to rise. He arranges for the clever and creative killings 
of the two unwanted spouses. Revenge plots emerge and, as might be expected, more murders happen. The juiciest section of this play is when Vittoria is placed on trial. Defiantly proclaiming her innocence, she is dressed head to toe in white, a slap in the face to a society dripping with hypocritical morality. Although there is scant evidence, Cardinal Monticelso finds her guilty, sentencing her to a convent for penitent whores. The character of Victoria is fascinating as an aggressively feminist outspoken woman. Her scandalous love affair is not a source of embarrassment. Standing trial before a male-dominated church and state, she insists that they speak to her in her native tongue, not in Latin. Courageously, she challenges the powerful and unmasks a double standard. Why are her crimes punished when those committed by men are not? The Red Bull Theater specializes in reviving the Jacobian plays of Shakespeare and his contemporaries. Tis Pity She's a Whore was one of my favorite productions of 2015. Unfortunately, this version of The White Devil frequently misses the mark. The set design alternated between cool and too contemporary. The video projections were effective in showing remote scenes such as banishment or murder. However, the sterile and white lounge area, is it an office? Seemed at odds with the dialogue. Manual opening and closing of curtains or blinds felt like busy distractions. The lighting was so bright that any sense of nuance was lost. Director Louisa Prosk may have been going for an examination of this play's themes under a harsh microscope. When a play contains the line, women are more chaste when less restrained of their liberties, the words themselves speak volumes. I can only guess that the modern decor is meant to underscore a parallel to our current times. I believe I could have easily drawn that line myself. I enjoyed experiencing the play as a fascinating artifact rather than this particular production. The style of acting seemed to be an odd mishmash of formality and looseness. Lisa Birnbaum's Vittoria definitely reminded me of my Italian relatives who possess strong backbones and questionable morals. Robert Caccioli's cardinal dripped with sanctimonious venom while wearing a gorgeous outfit. Terrific costumes by Beth Goldenberg. As the slinky cad Flemineo, Tommy Schreider nicely embodied the time period with a modern physicality. Derek Smith, as Count Lodovico, another revenge-obsessed character, was an ideal blend of crazy and committed with a commanding stage presence. I must point out that some audience members did not stay for the second half. A gentleman who sat back down to give it a chance awkwardly walked out a few minutes later. I am a big fan of theater companies that mount older works, and I enjoyed experiencing this grand tragedy. The overall production was disappointing, though. The material came across as flat and clinical, rather than hot-headed and passionate, like a holiday gathering of my youth. Our last review, The Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson musical. Published in 2005, The Lightning Thief was the first book in a series called Percy Jackson and the Olympians by Rick Riordan. A massive bestseller, the novel became an unloved 2010 film. In 2017, a musicalized version of this tale had a successful off-Broadway run. Now, Halfway through a six-month North American tour, 
The show briefly stopped in New York City at the Beacon Theater. When I finally read the book, I wondered how this bold and kooky adventure could effectively be staged. The genesis of the story occurred when the author began making up stories for his son who had been diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia. In second grade, he was studying Greek mythology. Dad's bedtime stories focused on that genre, eventually becoming this fictional tale of a young man who was a good kid who's had a bad run. Like his son, Percy Jackson has great difficulty reading. That's because he's a half-blood. His mother is mortal and his father is a god. But which one? Apparently, his mind comprehends Greek, which is why the English alphabet gets him all confused. Failing out of yet another school, his mom and best friend Grover take him to a camp for the summer. After encountering and defeating a minotaur on this journey, he arrives at Camp Half-Blood, exactly the place for his type. Percy is sent on a quest to restore peace between the gods. A lightning bolt is involved, hence the title. In this production, clever special effects are creatively and economically executed through the use of puppetry, lighting, and choreographed sword fighting. Some of the memorable battle scenes from the book are naturally toned down, or only hinted at, such as those monstrous red eyes in the dog carrier. The imaginative peak of the staging is the scenes which involve excessive water flows. The book for the show is written by Joe Trass, who's currently represented on Broadway with the internet-driven sensation Be More Chill. He did an admirable job of reducing or eliminating scenes which were either impossible to stage or might bog down this energetic romp. Rob Rokicki's music and lyrics were solid pop constructions aimed at the target audience. For at least the first half of Act 1, the sound design negatively impacted the show. The band's volume aggressively overplayed the vocals and the words were very difficult to hear. This may have been a road tour problem where shows are presented in many different sized houses. The noticeable problem did eventually settle down. A strong cast did a fine job in bringing this rollicking mythological adventure to life. The book's narrative tone has a nice snarky thread which has been carefully maintained. Chris McCarroll is a fine Percy Jackson. He is both a sardonic nerd and gullibly innocent young man who easily fills the wide-eyed hero role. As both best friend and Mr. D, Jorel Javier excelled in presenting two wildly different personas. Everyone had strong singing voices and fully developed characterizations. The performers moved swiftly through this rocket pace story which has been nicely directed by Stephen Brackett. The book and this musical are squarely aimed at the young and young at heart. Overall, this production is a high-quality, yet moderately budgeted theatrical pleasure filled with inventive details. Little touches, such as the squirrel scene, were pricelessly endearing. The kids seated around me seemed delighted. In multiple roles, deeply-voiced chameleon Ryan Knowles was highly entertaining when performing Patrick McCollum's choreography as Sharon, or channeling Hollywood Squares' Paul Lind for big laughs. The Lightning Thief is a carefully orchestrated combination of scrappy and professional. That tone feels faithful to Mr. Riordan's story. Some of the plot points whiz by without really enough explanation, notably the bus scene which opens Act 2. 
The book fans know how to fill in the details. This show is a fine introduction to live theater for an age group that wants a little more edge than that offered by the Disney shows. In an ideal world, perhaps children who suffer from dyslexia and other forms of learning hindrances and their parents will be inspired by what one man invented for his son. Remaining tour dates in cities across North America can be found at www.lightningthiefmusical.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month, Broadway gets very busy in the run-up to the Tony Award nominations. Four of them already on my schedule include the return of last year's Tony Award winner, Glenda Jackson, taking on Shakespeare's King Lear, a transferred musical from Off-Broadway from a few seasons ago, Town, the supremely talented new playwright Lucas Nath, is giving us a new one called Hillary and Clinton, starring Laurie Metcalf and John Lithgow, and very much looking forward to Taylor Mack, the Pulitzer Prize finalist for a 24-decade history of popular music. Well, he's taking on a play which is going to be a sequel to Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, starring Nathan Lane, Kristen Nielsen, and Julie White. I'm also going to head out of town to see two new musicals in development, one in Richmond, Virginia at the Virginia Rep, and it's a musicalized tale of Atlantis. And the other one is also a musical called Austin's Pride at ACT in Richfield, Connecticut, short for a contemporary theater. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the recap of this many plays in a single month. Have a great day.